Welcome to DST Radio, where we feature best-in-class insight and opinion from thought leaders and practitioners in the healthcare industry to help you stay informed to make the best decisions. DST Radio, I'm Greg Herschel. We're dealing with all kinds of interesting topics here today. And with me right now is Amy Sauls, who is Director of Population Health Strategy for DST Health Solutions. Amy has more than 20 years experience in data analysis and healthcare informatics, and right now she's got the responsibility for DST Health Solutions predictive modeling, analytics, and decision support projects. And I'm glad you're here with me, Amy, so you can explain to me what I just said. <laughs> it's great to be here. I started when I was five, so 20 years we, is a long time. This is, uh, there's a lot going on in this industry right now. Absolutely. I bet, it's, I, get, Absolutely. I bet it's kind of fun and challenging to watch all of this evolve. It's pretty exciting if you've been doing this for a while. Let's talk about some things. Uh, you like to talk about the three R's, reinsurance, risk corridors, and risk adjustment. And I'd like you to begin, if you would, by providing some background regarding this. Sure. Uh, the One of the cornerstones of the Affordable Care Act was the formation of health insurance marketplaces. These were originally called health benefit exchanges. And what that allows uh, insurance plans to do is certify themselves as issuers. They're also referred to as qualified health plans. And uh, they're allowed to represent themselves on the state insurance exchanges. Therefore, uh, individual consumers have access to them as plan options when they're selecting their insurance. The, those plans are risk-bearing organizations, meaning that they are limited in how they can um, set rates in terms of the premiums to consumers, and they need to uh, then develop risk mitigation strategies to make sure they're accounting for all of their costs uh, in addressing their sources of risk. And, and what are the, the main sources of risk? Mm -hmm. Sure, there's underwriting risk that relates to the risk corridor program. There's uh, clinical risk, which relates to the reinsurance program, and there's selection risk, which relates to the risk adjustment program. Uh, underwriting risk, in particular, represents the inability of that plan to price um, in terms of premium for predictable risks due to the inherent limitations of the community rating legislated in the uh, marketplace. When a plan is about to offer a plan, there may be differences in socioeconomics or a health status um, that prevent them from accurately predicting um, or pricing that risk. In addition, they may just have inadequate information in terms of claim history because remember, many of these enrollees are enrolling for the first time and that inhibits the accuracy of rate setting. So this is a temporary program. The risk quarters program was legislated to assist with underwriting risk specifically. The program will be operated by Health and Human Services. It's a temporary uh, portion of the um, risk mitigation program, uh, operating only between 2014 and 2016. It limits the potential losses, um, also limits the potential gains of individual issuers, um, and takes place after all other adjustments of uh, the reinsurance and risk adjustment that we'll be talking about. And it applies only to those qualified health plans, those issuers who are certified to operate on the exchange it's supported by a data submission annually um, by July 31st. That date is important because it is after all of the other adjustments take place. I have heard so much talk in the media about underwriting risk. Can you explain what's going on with that? Sure. So the health plans are limited to an adjusted community rating methodology, which means that they can only take into account an individual's age, their gender, and their smoking status when they set the rates. 
So the issue of, for example, pre-existing conditions can no longer contribute to the rate that's offered to a, an individual. And the narrative that the feds have put forth is that the plans need to be focused on ensuring that young and healthy members also become purchasers of healthcare so that that risk gets spread across the entire population. Premiums from young, healthy members who aren't going to have claims are needed in order to maintain a robust marketplace. So the good news, uh, ASPE, which is the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, has been monitoring the monthly enrollment figures over the course of the open enrollment period for uh, ACA. And what they have reported as as a result of the final open enrollment numbers is that 32% of all marketplace enrollees were under the age of 35, which is exactly what um, was predicted to be entering the exchange. So as far as the exchange um, marketplace as a whole, we believe that um, getting engaging those younger, healthier people has been uh, successful. And you know, just because they're younger doesn't mean they're healthier. So. Um, Along with that, the Commonwealth Fund has been surveying all along uh, people who are potentially could be uh, signing up on the health insurance exchange. And what they found in their December tracking survey was that uh, when asked about their general health, 54% of respondents that had visited healthcare.gov to shop for a plan reported that they were in excellent or very good health. So uh, again, that helps the overall stabi stability of the marketplace. See, when you explain it, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> they should put you in the media. <laughs> I want to ask you about something else. What are the other two types of risk that, that health plans have to be aware of when they're taking part in these marketplaces? Sure. Uh, the, the second uh, type is clinical risk. Um, there's a lot of variation in the need of healthcare services uh, across individuals. Your needs and my needs are not the same, and that represents clinical risks. Um, some people have very adverse risks. They're expected to be very high cost, whether that's because they are generally not well or whether they have a very catastrophic diagnosis. Um, what's happening is that there are existing high-risk pools that help to ensure those people that under pre-existing conditions were otherwise uninsurable. So they weren't left out to, um, out of the insurance market, but they were um, navigated towards these high-risk pools. And so those are dissolving because now there will be an insurance option for them with pre-existing conditions. And so they're all entering the marketplace. And if you were an insurer and got a disproportionate share of those types of enrollees, you would no longer be financially viable. So these high-cost claimants, um, are expected to participate in the health insurance exchange in a higher proportion than, for example, in a typical commercial health plan. So what the um, legislation has provided for is a government-sponsored reinsurance program with a very low attachment point. Uh, the attachment point represents the point at which claims will be paid to the health plan as a temporary measure, so again, another temporary measure. Uh, so when a person presents with high medical needs and their costs exceed this attachment point, um, the federal government reinsurance program will be paying claims in that portion of, in a ratio of 80% up until $250,000, at which point a traditional insurer would already have a reinsurance program that would cover that. The program is expected just to be a temporary premium stabilization measure just between 2014 and 2016. Um, so um, this is open to, uh, so all health plans participate in providing the funding for this program. This is intended to be a budget neutral program. So if you are offering a commercial product, 
uh, whether or not you're operating on the exchange or if you're a third party administrator working with a self-insured uh, uh, group, those also need to contribute to this fund over the first three years. But only um, those um, pro plans that are in the individual market where you're getting premium for one person at a time are eligible to collect the payouts of that high risk pool. Let's talk about selection risk. What is that and why does it matter to the marketplace plans? Selection risk is actually one of the most important pieces of this because um, this is the opportunity for individuals to preferentially select a plan within the marketplace um, when they have certain high risks. So adverse risk selection of the particular members of a certain health plan. Um, you can imagine how this might happen. If I know that Dr. Um, Dr. Jones is an expert in the field of oncology and I have an oncology diagnosis, I'm going to pick the plan for which he's part of the network. Sure. So there's you know, a built-in incentive to choose those things which appeal directly to me as a consumer. And so um, there also may be uh, individuals who are healthy and choose not to participate in the marketplace. So they're actually not feeding that pool of healthier users. So there's some adverse recession kind of on both sides. So um, when that happens, the plan can't adjust their prices. That's part of the whole uh, adjusted community rating. That's part of the, the premium rate setting. So in order to protect an issuer against being the one plan that draws all of these sicker people, there is a payment transfer mechanism uh, where we can measure the disease burden of the individuals in every plan and then redistribute the funds, not consumer-facing. Consumer premium never changes, but we can, on the... Um, financial true up at the end of the year say you were overpaid your premium because the people that you insured were not that sick. So the mechanism for doing that is to gather diagnosis information to assess that disease burden and then to do transfers across plans within a market. Um, this is a federally run program. The states have the option to run it themselves. In 2014, Massachusetts is the only plan that opted to do so. So everyone else will be operating on a federal level. The funds get transferred from plans that are lower risk to those that are higher risk. It applies to plans that choose to participate in the exchange as well as plans that did not choose to participate in the exchange when they operate a small group or individual products. And it's based on um, encounter data that's collected from issuers over the course of a calendar year. They have until April 30th to submit all of that encounter data and then the payment transfer will occur by June 30th. The method for collecting that encounter data is through a distributed data collection technique called the edge server. Uh, the server itself, the physical server, is maintained by the issuer, but it's provisioned by CMS, and they will have some access to that data. So do these participating marketplaces have to be concerned with risk this year, or it doesn't really matter till 2015? Well, the payment will occur in 2015, but really monitoring needs to happen on day one. These are uh, individuals for which you have no history, and uh, it's very possible that a good portion of a population may have some adverse health risks that you would want to manage both from a financial perspective in terms of, of reserving and, um, and managing, but also clinical risk where you might be able to improve their quality of life. So um, plans should be using predictive modeling to better understand their financial risks. Um, in order to support these new populations. Let's talk about potentially a complicated topic, but a very important one. Tell me a little bit about predictive modeling. Sure. 
Uh, predictive modeling is a methodology. Um, those two words together are very generic. It applies to a lot of different industries in the healthcare market space. Predictive modeling typically means using administrative data to understand the potential uh, financial exposure of an individual. Um, it's widely used by health plans today to stratify their enrollees and to identify candidates that they might want to refer into more intensive care management programs. For the newly insured that we are seeing now, um, assuring complete and accurate documentation of their conditions is critical to managing risk adjustment. So we can use predictive modeling to give insight into selection bias that might ultimately affect that risk adjustment payment transfer. I think I actually understood that. Now, <laughs> let's go a little deeper and see if I can understand it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the risk adjustment model that the um, federal government is using is something that is in the public domain. It's available and published on the SOSIA website. Um, like the program that's used today in the Medicare Advantage program, it is defining a set of condition categories that um, are basic groupings of individual diagnosis codes. The diagnosis coding system, by the way, has over 16,000 codes, so you have to group it up to make it meaningful. Otherwise, you're looking at very discrete um, portions of the population. When related conditions are documented for a single beneficiary, similar conditions get grouped together and they're called hierarchical conditions uh, so that only the most severe manifestation of that series of diseases are used for risk scoring. That final category, hierarchical condition category or HCC, um, is, is what's applied in the risk model. Individuals can have more than one of them. So you can have heart failure and diabetes and arthritis, and uh, we're going to account for all of those. The sum of the individual conditions um, and your demographics are used in determining a final risk score. So risk score is a number. One would represent what an average person will look like. You'll see multiples of one indicating that someone's riskier than average. Um, so that's how they're similar to the Medicare Advantage program. However, there's differences in the way they're being applied because this population is brand new. We don't have history on them to be able to say prospectively what we think is going to happen next year. We have to look backwards retrospectively. Um, the model is developed on commercial claims data. Um, and uh, while the CMS model, the Medicare Advantage model that is, uses 79 HCCs in the current year, uh, this model includes 127 because there's some brand new populations, most notably you know, pregnant women, um, infants. Uh, there's some clinical conditions that, you know, unfortunately people do not live to be Medicare eligible, hemophilia, cystic fibrosis. So out of those um, many diagnosis codes, the risk adjustment model is being selective of those things that most influence risk, and they select only about 3,500 codes. The model's also being applied retrospectively. Um, whereas the Medicare Advantage program looks prospectively. And because in the health insurance marketplace, you actually have to decide how rich of a benefit package you would like, uh, they have to vary the variations to that because what we're trying to model with the risk adjustment is what the plan will have to pay. And if you as a consumer are choosing a lower metal level, metal levels describe the benefits in um, the marketplace, then you're paying more out of pocket and the health plan is paying less. So the risk scores do vary by metal level and there are also variations for adult children and infants. Ultimately, 
the way the risk score is going to be applied is not on an individual by individual premium adjustment, but at a group aggregate plan risk score, transferring funds between states in the market. That's a long answer. <laughs> it, it sure is. <laughs> but I'll and bet there's more. <laughs> there always is. I'm not done yet. So um, for each of the metal level, um, for each of the metal levels, there are differences in the individuals because of the different plan paid amounts. The adults, uh, children and infants, they, they express themselves in terms of different conditions. Um, and in particular, you know, certain populations, infants in particular, they are, they're medically needy. That doesn't mean they're sick. It just means that we anticipate spending for immunizations, for preventive care visits. Sometimes there's developmental delays and other things that are more resource intensive for them. And so we do, um, the risk scores do identify these populations differently. Um, I mentioned earlier that the HCCs just consider about 3,500 diagnoses, and these are not exhaustive. So typically not everyone is assigned an HCC. Um, from the final rule, HHS reported that uh, they anticipated 19% of adults would have one of these conditions, 9% of children, and 45% of infants. That means that for the majority of people, everyone outside of that percentage, their risk score is only the, based on their demographic information. So when uh, HHS was determining what HCCs they want, wanted to consider, uh, they had specific criteria. They wanted the HCCs to represent clinically significant conditions that are associated with significant costs. They needed to make sure they were not so rare or grouped in a way uh, to uh, not allow for sufficient sample size. They want these HCCs to be stable. Um, they didn't want them to be subject to discretionary coding, what that means is sometimes uh, certain codes are uh, descriptive and providers use them, but they're not un describing an underlying condition or treatment. So for example, uh, status codes like, and uh, there's a, a code, a diagnosis code for general medical exam, for example. So that's, sometimes that's added, sometimes that's not. Um, whether the HCC represents um, chronic or systematic conditions, um, uh, that are inherent in, in risk segmentation as opposed to uh, random acute events. So the fact that someone um, experiences a, uh, a significant condition that leads them to the hospital doesn't necessarily make it a great candidate for an HCC because it's not predictable. Um, uh, they exclude HCCs that represent poor quality of care, so complications of treatment are kind of the risk borne by the health plan. And then uh, a subset may apply to certain age groups and not to others. So I just stated that more in the affirmative of how they're selecting these HCCs. So implicit in that, there are some exclusions. They are excluding rare conditions because they don't have enough sample size for stable populations. Uh, so you'll every once in a while hear a, a documentary about a, a child with a very rare condition, only a couple hundred children have it. Those will not be part of this. Uh, conditions subject to discretionary coding, so those kind of status codes. Um, you'll see uh, things related to random acute events, so you know gunshot wounds are not part of the risk model, and things that represent poor quality of care, those complications of treatment. Very extensive. Now, based on all of that, how are plans reimbursed? So once every individual has a risk score assigned to them, 
Uh, they will be aggregated to a plan level risk score and then a comparison of each plan's risk score relative to their market. So this is not something you can determine based on one plan alone. It, you have to know how every participant in the marketplace is performing. And then uh, payments will be transferred. The payment transfer formula um, explains the differences in the relative costs of your plan that are associated with illness burden, um, which is, represents the health services needs of that population compared to the market average and the relative costs of your plan associated with those things that you could actually account for in the premium rate setting like age and gender. So what it's doing is it's accounting for the differences in health services demand and the portion that you can actually account for already. There's some unrateable risk that you're bearing and that's the portion that will be transferred. Um, since um, the rate setting for 2014 is already complete because people are, have already purchased their insurance for this year, open enrollment is closed. Um, accurately capturing illness burden is, is part of it, um, but they also have to manage the direct medical expenses to be able to balance that profit and loss. And predictive modeling um, can help balance that by understanding the costs as well. We've talked about reinsurance, risk corridors, risk adjustment. Now I'm going to ask you to give some free advice for the health plans uh, as far as some specific recommendations. Sure. So one thing we know is that providers are not the best sources of diagnostic coding information. When you are in their office and they are documenting your record, not all of that information gets transferred to the bill you actually submit to the insurance company. So uh, physicians as the source of this coding information leads to some coding deficiencies. Uh, ultimately, they may have put something in the chart that doesn't translate into the bill. Because historically, when we pay for services, we're paying for procedures, not for diagnoses. So we really need plans to be aware of their potential coding deficiencies and to identify and correct for them. We know that uh, this is going to be allowable, that supplemental sources of information beyond just encounters and claims can contribute to codes and that the medical record will be seen as the gold standard. So when we can infer a coding deficiency, the plans should be uh, pursuing that for correction. Inherent in that, there are some audit risks in doing that. So you need to make sure that you are assuring that there are appropriate uh, chart documentation in, in place and to have those available for uh, the risk adjustment data validation audit. We know that uh, while in this year, um, there are very generous um, uh, accounting of high cost claimants in terms of the reinsurance program that is going to dwindle over time. So you really need to be able to rapidly identify members who have high medical needs and to mitigate some of those risks from a clinical perspective doing care coordination um, activities. And you need to be aware of where there may be some beneficial se selection, certain patient types for which the risk adjustment actually works very well and uh, by encouraging enrollment of those kinds of populations, um, you may see some, some benefit of the risk adjustment program specifically. For each of those, we, again, would use predictive modeling to play a part. It's an important management tool for overall financial performance. Information that every health plan really should have in order to be successful in the, the marketplaces right now. Amy, thank you so much for, for sharing all this with us. Amy Sauls is the Director of Population Health Strategy for DST Health Solutions. You can find out more about this topic if you visit our website at dsthealthsolution.com. And you're listening to DST Radio. 
Thank you for listening to DST Radio. For more information or questions, contact DST Health Solutions at 800-272-4799 or email us at marketing at dsthealthsolutions.com.